We're in a series um, called The God and Father of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And each week we're looking at different aspects of who Jesus revealed God to be. This week we'll be in John chapter 3. And we're thinking of God as a giver. St. James describes God, you might remember this from the last series, as one who gives generously to all without reproach. Uh, Jesus said, your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask. And Jesus knew the Father's someone who loves to give. One of the first things God did after the creation of humans was give them a gift. He said, I give you, here's my, here's my gift to you, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. It's all yours. I give it to you. St. Paul told the Athenians that God gives all men life and breath and everything else. See, the gods of the Greeks and Romans, they were takers. They wanted incense and offerings and flattery. But the God and Father of Jesus is a giver. He is the giver. In the Bible, we read of many of God's gifts. There's the gift of good standing with God. All, all of the things I'm about to say come right out of Scripture. There's the gift of good standing with God, the gift of eternal life, the gift of God's Spirit, the gift of special abilities to bless the church, uh, the gift of grace. Besides that, God gives us promises we can claim, commands we can obey, leaders we can follow. He gave wisdom to direct us, revelation to inform us, a calling to lead us, he gave us a body so we could interact with each other and with our surroundings and a spirit of power and love and discipline to, to energize that body. He gave many of us children so that we could learn to love and to sacrifice and give like he does. He gives us the ability to produce wealth. That's Deuteronomy 8. He gives his people strength, gives them rest, gives them food to eat. He sometimes gives the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Other times he gives us relief from trouble. He gives us victory. St. Paul takes all of this and he sums it up in a question. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And the implied answer is, Nothing. All this, to quote St. Paul, out of context but in spirit, is from God. He's the great giver. Now, he's the great giver, but not in the sense an ATM machine is a great giver. An ATM gives you something. It's yours already. But God gives you himself. In every gift he gives whether it's our daily bread or the bread of affliction, he gives himself. He gives himself to people who love him and people who don't, to people who acknowledge him and people who deny that he exists. God's like a good mother. Whether she's making her kids dinner or she's giving them help with their math homework or she's disciplining them, she's always giving them herself. And that's what God does. The quintessential example of God giving himself in his gifts is Jesus. Jesus put it this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Of all the gifts God gave, this is the best because the giver is most fully present in the gift. In Christ, this is St. Paul, 
all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. When God gave his son, he gave himself. Unfortunately, many people think of God as a taker, not a giver. I'm sure some of you. It's not that you, you think about it. It's, that you, it's just a, in the back of your mind an assumption. He's after our time. He's after our money. He's after our fun, and we don't dare refuse him. If that's how you think, you'll be one of those people who's always bargaining with God. You'll say things like, God, I'll change if you'll get me out of this mess. I'll go to church if you take care of this illness. I'll quit drinking if you'll bring my wife back. And you'll try to bargain with God. When our view of God is distorted, we'll end up doing things that aren't healthy for us. Remember the temptation in the garden? It hinged on the tempter's ability to distort the truth about God in the minds of the humans. They had been given every fruit-bearing tree in the world except one, temporarily, and for good reason. But the tempter came along and said, in effect, God doesn't really have your interests at heart. He talks about giving you all these trees, but notice he takes away the one thing you need to be fulfilled. That idea, God is not a giver, but a taker and a withholder, has troubled people ever since. And not just irreligious people. I mean, religious people who are serious about doing what's right and knowing the truth often carry this very distorted view of God around with them. Once humanity's relationship with God was broken, our ideas about him became more and more distorted. A common distortion looks like this. When we're relating to God, he's on the receiving end, we're on the giving end. It's our job to satisfy him. We do, he watches. We give, he takes. That's a skewed vision, and it turns life into an unending succession of sacrifices. We'd see through that immediately if it wasn't for the fact that that distortion leaves us in control. And that's where we want to be. Just as our father Adam and mother Eve thought they'd be in that place of control when they spurned God's way and chose their own. Jesus spoke to a man whose vision of God was right and good in many ways, but distorted in some. The man had had accepted the idea, it's our job to satisfy God. We work, he watches, we give, he takes. His name was Nicodemus. He was a prominent religious leader. And he's also a good guy. But because his view was distorted, his, his view of God, his view of life was also distorted. When he met Jesus, you read about in the first couple of verses of John chapter 3, he was humble, serious, polite. From what he knew of Jesus, he assumed that the two of them were on the same page or at least on adjoining pages. But Jesus knew that Nicodemus's thinking was skewed. Like a lot of religious people, Nicodemus assumed that God waits for people to get it right before he'll help them. And he could even find biblical support for that. Deuteronomy 28 through 30 and in other places. It it would never have occurred to Nicodemus that Jesus might think differently about that. Because Nicodemus' vision of God was distorted, he watches, we work, he takes, we give, and then he requires we give more. 
He believed that success in the spiritual life was all on us. If we would just try a little harder, things could be okay. Jesus in John 3 does not tweak Nicodemus's thinking. He discards it. Uh, that theology doesn't need a tune-up. It needs a whole new engine. Jesus interrupts Nicodemus in mid-thought and entirely redirects his thinking. People don't need to try harder. They need a new life. They need a new kind of life, a new way to be human. They must be born again. Or literally, they must be begotten from above. Uh, the word that's translated born every time in here is the word that's used over and over again in the genealogies. Uh, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah, and so forth. Let me read part of this conversation from John 3. I'll start with verse 3, follow along. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So I said it means begotten from above. The thing is, in Greek, this word has a, um, a double meaning. And St. John loves double meanings. It can mean again. And obviously, Nicodemus takes him to mean again. But its principal meaning is from above. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. From reading that in the original language, I'm almost sure Nicodemus was being snarky. I mean, he's not just, he's not just saying, I don't understand this. I have a question. He's, he's being snarky here. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit, or literally begats each time. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. By the way, I said John loves double meanings. The word wind is the word pneuma. The word spirit is the word pneuma. They're the same word. So he's doing that again. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Nicodemus knows how things work, right? And the way they work is you try harder. You're in control. If you mess up, it's all your fault. How can this be? You're Israel's teacher, Jesus asked, and you don't understand these things? All right, we're going to talk about this and go deep if you want to come, because I'm going to look at one aspect of this. This passage is so full of meaningful things and, and occasionally difficult things that it bears a lot of thought and meditation. Because of his assumptions about God, Nicodemus really wants people to try harder. I mean, he really, really does. God's kingdom won't come until people get serious. But Jesus knows that telling people to try harder is beside the point. It's like telling people, if you're ever drowning, yell loudly and wave your hands just like they do on TV. When people are drowning, they experience something known as instinctive drowning response except in extremely rare cases, they can't even speak, much less yell, and they can't wave for help. They can only extend their arms laterally and press down on the water's surface. 
Instinctive drowning response is triggered by a host of, of autonomic nervous system responses, completely involuntary, unlearned, unavoidable. So telling people they need to shout and wave and reach for the rescuers, completely unhelpful. Nicodemus had, in effect, been telling people for years to shout and wave and help themselves. And to be fair, he told himself the same things. So when Jesus told him it was useless, he was incredulous. When Jesus told him he needed a new kind of life even to see the kingdom of God, he was amazed. How can this be? That's not how it works. In his early life, he had been told, and in his later life, he had told many other people that they're just going to have to try harder, give more, get serious. Jesus is taking control away from Nicodemus. Or rather, he's showing him he didn't have any control to begin with. He's the drowning man. Unless someone who knows what he's doing comes to his rescue, he's a goner. He'll never see the kingdom. Nicodemus's ideas about how a person ought to do life came out of a distorted view of who God is. He watches while we do. He takes while we give and then immediately requires more. Jesus' understanding of how to do life, it's also based on the view of who God is. God's not sitting around waiting for us to get it right. You might as well wait for a drowning man to stop drowning before you help him. God's not waiting. He's already acted to help us. In verse 16, Jesus clears away the distortion. He shows Nicodemus and us the truth about God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And to make it even clearer, he tells Nicodemus, who has always imagined that God has this look on his face, a kind of glowering look. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Nicodemus thought of God as a taker. Jesus shows him that God is a giver, the giver. Nicodemus thought God waits. Jesus tells him that God sends Nicodemus thought God hates our weakness and our failures. Jesus shows him that God loves the world. Now, I have to think that, we're not told, but I have to think that Nicodemus went away from this interview stunned. Jesus had just unmade his world. I'm sure he went away arguing in his mind with Jesus all the time. He thought and had taught that making everything right depends on us. Just do what the law says. Jesus introduced the idea that it depends on God. He thought and it taught that God is waiting and watching until we get it right. Jesus introduced the idea that God isn't waiting. He's already sent his son. Nicodemus thought we have to be better people. Jesus introduces the idea that we can be new people. It's not our self-improvement that will make the difference. It's God's spirit. When Nicodemus went home, he had a lot to think about. I'm sure. You ever been in that place where your mind just can't stop? I'm sure he was in that place. Biblical passages would have been flooding into his mind, like what God said through the prophet. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that sounds like what Jesus was just saying. He would have thought of God's promise in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I don't think Nicodemus ever got over what he heard that night. He knew the Bible too well. Boy, did he know the Bible. He knew it too well to miss the fact that the things Jesus said to him were in there. As time went on, he became increasingly convinced that Jesus was right and that he had been wrong. How uncomfortable that must have been for him. To come to the conclusion when you are what Jesus calls the teacher of Israel, literally, that you've been wrong? You've been telling people the wrong thing? How could he admit that? But as the truth kept lighting up new places in his mind, see, the spirit that Jesus spoke about was already at work in him. How could he go on pretending that he was right? The Gospel of John, I love this, it follows Nicodemus's progress. So in, in John 3, he's confused and troubled and more than a little offended by what Jesus says. But Jesus' words have gotten in, and they're doing their work, and Nicodemus keeps mulling them over. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus appears again, and we see how those words have been working in him. Uh, the, the, there's an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin, and he's on the Sanhedrin, the high council. He's a person of, of uh, great esteem in this country. And he dares to defend Jesus to his peers, a little sheepishly, but he defends him. He knows that they'll be angry, but he speaks up anyway. He knows they'll say unkind things to him, and they do. They insult him. They imply that he's ignorant of the scriptures, and they challenge him. You look into it. And I think that's just what he did. And what he found with each new day is that Jesus was right. And then in John 19, we meet Nicodemus again. Jesus, um, when he first came to Jesus, John tells us he came under the cover of darkness. In fact, every time John mentions Nicodemus, he reminds us of how he had come. He came in darkness. Now he wants us to know that Nicodemus has come into the light. Nicodemus helps his friend Joseph take Jesus' body down from the cross, even though it means they'll be ceremonially unclean and unable to celebrate the Passover, even though his peers will think he's lost his mind, even though it might cost him his career and his reputation. He's come into the light. I suspect that in the intervening time, Nicodemus went to hear Jesus whenever he came to Jerusalem. So Jesus, is, Jesus wasn't stationed in Jerusalem. Now his home base was in Galilee. But he came to Jerusalem fairly often, and I suspect every time he did, Nicodemus was there to hear him. They said, look into it. I think he did. Perhaps he was even part of one of those fact-finding delegations you read about in the Gospels that the Pharisees kept sending to Jesus. After he spoke up in John chapter 7, Things started to move quickly for Nicodemus. When Jesus came to Jerusalem for the last time, I think Nicodemus was already convinced Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But he hadn't made that belief public. So just think of how much he had to lose if he did. 
something happened to change that. Something happened so that he came out in the end as Jesus' person. At the first meeting, Jesus had said, I didn't read this to you, but you should read that whole passage. At that first meeting, Jesus had said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. I'm pretty sure Nicodemus went away from that meeting thinking, what on earth is he talking about? He would have still been mulling that over when Jesus was in Jerusalem about a year later, and he told people, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, the NIV says, who I claim to be, but the Greek says, I, I am, using the name of God from Exodus chapter 3. And then later still, in Jerusalem again, this is John chapter 12, Nicodemus may have heard Jesus say once again, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. For Nicodemus, those words must have remained an enigma. The Son of Man lifted up like the snake in the desert. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when I am lifted up, I suppose he puzzled over that a great deal until on a Friday morning during Passover, perhaps talking about these things with his friend Joseph, who was also a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus heard that Jesus was being executed. So these two are both members of the Sanhedrin, but we read in the Gospels that the Sanhedrin voted unanimously to execute Jesus. That can only mean that these two weren't present at the meeting. I have a feeling they were left out of the invitation because of how they would have voted. And so they're talking, and they hear there's an execution, and Jesus is being executed. And so they hurry to Golgotha, where they see three crosses, Jesus is on the middle one, fastened to it like Moses fastened the snake to the pole in the wilderness. Think of what was going through his mind in that moment. This is what he meant. When I am lifted up. I'm sure he didn't understand it all. But in that moment, he realized Jesus understood it all. He was blown away when he realized this is what it means for God to give his only begotten son. This would heal the world that God loves the way the snake in the wilderness healed God's people. I believe it was right there under that cross that Nicodemus became one who believes in the only begotten Son and so would not perish but have everlasting life. Have you seen that? Have you believed in God's only begotten Son? We don't need to try a little harder. 
We need to be born from above. Receive the new kind of life that comes from God's spirit because of God's love expressed in God's son on a cross. All right, let's pray. And if you are Jesus's person, you've been begotten from above, would you just praise God and wonder at what he's done? And if you're not, would you believe on the Son of God? God, we have thought things of you that aren't true. And they've messed us up. Lord, we're just beginning to see that you're better than we ever imagined. You're the God who gives. and even gives his only begotten son. We bless you. In the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.